1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is uh, Wednesday, August thirty first, 2016. This is episode 1861 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, this is going to be a good one. We have an interview today. Of course, all Wednesdays are interview shows. Our interview today is with Marcin Jubikoski. He has been on the show before. I've actually met him in person once at Perma uh, uh, Perma. Perma ethos, Permaculture Culture Voices too. About two years ago, out in California, he's a really great guy, and he's the the founder of the Open Source Ecology Institute, uh, and he's working with the Open Business and o- Open Building Institute, and we have him on today to talk about a joint project where they're going to be uh, helping people make affordable uh, housing. In fact, we're talking about 700-square-foot houses uh, with a target of a five-day build date for about one-tenth the cost of conventional construction using open-source methodologies. That sounds pretty cool. And 700 square feet sounds a lot better to me than tiny. That sounds like small. I'm I'm all about the small houses. So I'm really looking forward to today's show. I think it'll be great. And Marston is really a smart dude. I mean, this is a guy... Uh, with a PhD in fusion physics, who got bored with that and decided to do something for people on this planet. Uh, So he's a good, solid man. With that, before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home Up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Next, let's take a look at the year before. that was the episode before we bring Marcin on, the year being 1861 because the episode is 1861. I have three for you today. The first one is Let's Slip the Dogs of War, then Left Brain, Right Brain, And then I have The Land of the Free and the First U.S. Income Tax. I would suggest you read that one. If you want to understand the genesis of the theft of income tax in this country, it is not the one I'm going to read. And in other news, the Kingdom of Italy begins the unification process. The Northern and Southern Kingdoms formally declare their unity this year, but somebody didn't get the memo. They really, really aren't unified yet, but it's a start. The Pony Express is replaced by the Telegraph shows the advancing of technology, a a job, I think, that people thought, man, this is a tough job, but it's a secure job, gone. And the Gatlin gun is invented. With the onset of war, the ingenious mind of American citizen turns to mechanized mayhem. The result, a multi-barreled gun that will show people how futile war can be. FYI, it doesn't help at all in that regard. With that, let me read, of course, I have to, with it being 1861. Most people with even a rudimentary knowledge of American history know what goes on this year. A line in the sand is being drawn. Six more slave states succeed from the Union before President-elect Abraham Lincoln can take the oath of office. The Confederacy of America is established with Jefferson Davis as its president. Federal properties are seized while President Buchanan does nothing. Fort Sumter in South Carolina was not seized because its construction had not been completed. Due to budget cuts, only a single Union soldier guarded its gates. Nearby Fort Moultrie was manned, but it was not considered a threat since it was poorly positioned. So late last year, the Union commander of Fort Moultrie, Major Anderson, exercised his contingency orders and took possession of Fort Sumter. And here we are. South Carolina is outraged because, well, President Buchanan promised... Don't get me started. Fort Sumter holds a commanding position over Charleston Harbor, but it needs food and wood for heat. Buchanan sends the Star of West to resupply, but it is turned away. After Lincoln takes office, he informs the governor that several small supply bolts will be landed. He doesn't tell President Davis because there is no Confederacy, but this is a battle for honor. General Bogard asks for respectfully for Major Anderson's surrender of Fort Anderson, of the fort. Anderson declines. After 39 hours of bombardment, General Bogart offers to evacuate the fort, not surrender. Honor has been served. Anderson agrees to the condition that his men offer a 100-gun salute to the Union flag. In the midst of the salute, a spark catches a pile of cartridges, killing Private David Howe and Private Edward Galloway, the first casualties of the war. Major Anderson carries away the flag of Fort Sumter. The war between the states has begun. My take by Alex Shrugged. The American Civil War was not strictly a civil war, though definitions today point to it as a prime example of one. I'm not buying it. The Confederacy was not attempting to take over the U.S. government. It simply left the government. One might say they were, there were provinces in rebellion. The southern states didn't like a strong centralized government, but the idea that they left simply because of the Norse interference seems weak. More likely it was Abraham Lincoln's overwhelming election under the anti-slavery Republicans, they could see their doom no matter what Lincoln said or the party platform indicated. Slavery and agrarian society could only survive under certain conditions, and those conditions could not be applied in the North, nor the Far West for that matter. Any statements from the South regarding overwhelming superiority of whites over blacks seemed like whistling past the graveyard. Soon after the Battle of Fort Sumter, Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee joined the Confederacy. Missouri and Kentucky never formally joined. Several Virginia districts sl- slided with the Union and became West Virginia. Yes, and an incredibly horrific bloody war with brother-killing brother has begun in our country in 1861. And it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a travesty for liberty in so many ways because had it not been for slavery, the South was right. However, you can't remove slavery, so the South was wrong. And it, 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 to this day, is an encumbrance when anyone seeks to assert the rights of the states over the rights of the central government, because it's still, by twisting, turning, and, and and ingenuous, disingenuous nature, twisted back to slavery and the Civil War, and we did that already, and we've settled that question. My personal belief is, no, we haven't. We may have settled the issue of slavery, thank God. We did not sla- settle the the issue of the right of those who created the nation to depart from it if they so choose to. We have not settled that issue at all. And hopefully if we ever do, it will be with a far less bloody uh, means of doing so. With that, let's go ahead and get into our main topic of today's show. I want to bring on our special guest today, Martian Jomonaski. Again, this guy is a dude with a Ph.D. in fusion physics from the University of Wisconsin and graduated from honors uh, with honors from Princeton University. Uh, but today, he is doing things more in keeping with actually making the world a better place through his worst work with open-source ecology. With that, hey, Marson, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Glad to be here again. Mm-hmm. Marcin, you are part of the uh, open-source ecology. In fact, you're the founder of open-source ecology. Uh, and I, we are here to talk today about open-source and open-building and some really cool stuff. Yeah. But before we get into that, I like my audience to be able to know the guests. And I know a lot of people in my audience do know who you are, but a lot mm-hmm. of people have no idea who you are. You were on before, but that was well over a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you kind of just catch us up to, like, who is Marson and, and how would you get into doing what you're doing? Like, you know, kind of back when you were a kid, you know, where'd you grow yes. up and, and, and how'd you end up here? Right.
2: Should start in one thousand nine hundred and eighty two when I came from Poland, and at that time tanks were rolling down my streets. This is the time of grayness behind the Iron Curtain in Poland, a communist country at that time and um, coming to America was great, and the first time I stepped into a supermarket, I was just wowed by the amazing amount of variety in a store and it would make me think about things about prosperity, material security so my father, being a scientist, I, I thought, okay, well, and I was getting ready to for a career in uh, some form of science. I, I always would ask myself, well, how can we use human knowledge to make lives better for everybody and solve pressing world issues up to things like poverty and war? And the further I went in my, my education, the less relevant I felt to solving pressing world issues. So the last year of my um, Ph.D. program in fusion, I started open source ecology. Actually the way um why I started that was because even in, in my own program, in the fusion program, I was not able to communicate openly with others and other groups at, at my university or other groups because we were all competing for funding and resources. So I thought, wow, it's such a waste. Let's let's talk about what it would really look like when we, we would collaborate openly to to simply increase innovation more than, more than it's today. I mean, people just don't collaborate. And I thought about what would the economic system look like when everything is truly open so people can learn faster and problems could be solved faster than they're created. So that's a little background where I come from, especially from the material security perspective when, when seeing Poland compared to America and asking, well, why does one country just have it all and another one is in despair? And it's, it's about natural resources, how we, how we use them, but today we haven't solved the issue of how we take abundant natural resources and convert them to the lifestyle of modern civilization in a distributed way where everybody can benefit. So that's that's the issue I'm working
1: on. I got you. I mean I want to just kind of thinking back when you're talking about the timeline, I was going to uh grade school and uh junior high in the uh in the mid and early eighties. And um, I remember yeah. there were quite a few people that were coming here from various places, but specifically Poland in that time. And the one thing I can say about the the kids that I met that came here from Poland is they were tough kids, and I think it's because they were coming out of a tough environment. Hmm. Yeah. It, not me. The- just they were. You know what I mean? They were tough. They were not. They were not soft people. Yeah. I mean, I think that's. Huh. I think not
2: being spoiled, just like. If you just talk about the material security front, I mean, over there we would have to, for example, wait in line for food because things were rationed. So it's just a different mentality. I mean, we're a country that was surrounded by uh, powerful neighbors. We're in the middle of Second World War. We got invaded by Hitler first and taken over in a few days. And, you know, like my grand, like my grandmother was in a concentration camp. My grandfather was in a Polish underground derailing German supply trains. So I think there's that little bit of reality check. Regarding, um, I guess, close tie to, to, I mean, times dark times that maybe make people think in a certain way, and definitely being in an environment which is resource scarce under communism. That kind of makes you think a different way. You don't get spoiled, I guess. Um, this is definitely my perspective on that.
1: Before we dig into Open Building Institute, just kind of catch people up with what you've been doing, in you know, over the last, I guess, five ten years. With the concept of open source ecology. What is that and what, what does that mean?
2: Yeah. So open source ecology for the last few years been working on a set of 50 industrial machines, open source industrial machines that can build a modern civilization with modern comforts. So it's an open source project where we basically publish the blueprints for key things like tractors, uh, bread ovens, <laughs> uh, energy production equipment, cars, mach- production machinery, everything that's critical to the infrastructure of a society. An idea is okay, we've got a certain system that we live in, but what about what about doing things more ecologically, working towards relocalized economies and open collaboration, just much more sustainable and regenerative way to live and the, our perspective on that is to provide the enabling tools that make distributed production possible that make sound governance possible just just a different operating system for how how we develop things instead of the standard corporate pattern of secrecy and basically war (laughs) or or violence to get the get the things that we have today so it's but the focus is on 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 machines which are so powerful so it's open-source hardware machines that can change people's lives in profound ways, and that's why we're working on hardware as opposed to software or any other realm we're working on um on assuring that the material basis of sound living can be provided to all
1: very cool um so could you could you maybe give an example of just one of these machines that you guys have yeah. worked on and some successes you've had with it?
2: yeah, like the brick press is the compressed earth block press, which makes block, building block, out of earth by compressing it, and that's a machine that we built as the first one because when we moved on to our experimental facility here in Missouri, we needed some housing, and we did some natural building, quickly found out it's back-breaking work, so we needed to industrialize that a little bit, make it more efficient. So that's, that's an example of the first machine. There's the brick press power cube that powers that, that's used to move around and and load the, the
1: brick press. So
2: very, very fundamental industrial machines.
1: And now you've started working in the world of something you call the Open Building Institute. Yeah. What, what need so, does that address?
2: Yeah. So this is about low-cost, affordable housing for everyone. So making that widely accessible. The idea was that Okay, we build these machines like tractors and brick presses, but not a lot of people even know what what that's all about. But everybody understands a house. So we decided that, okay, as a great application, something that can really spread through the world, focus on a housing housing idea such that you can really put the machines into perspective. And in detail, uh, the specific product we're working on is a 750-square-foot seed eco-home it's loaded with ecological features, costs under 25000 in materials, and can be built in five days. So the kind of work we're doing is optimizing the builds to a large, parallel, modern-day barn-raising style because of modular design. People can work in parallel on the individual parts and then put them together rapidly. So that's exactly what we're doing for the housing. We found that, wow, it works. It's uh. We can get 30 people or so, and in five days, we can have a complete structure. So we've got a build of that coming up, just taking our techniques further.
1: What are some of the features of this thing you're calling the seed home? I mean, that sounds yeah. Pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, that's an infographic. Uh, it should link to the audience. Things like 3,000 watts of solar panels. It's got a biogas digester for for making gas for cooking. It's got a closed-loop water system where you can take either rooftop runoff or surface water and treat it to potable. It's got an attached aquaponic greenhouse. We've got a thermoelectric generator for nighttime power. It's got a brick floor, a hydronic heating pellet stove, um, w- s- gray water processing. So basically, all the features and super efficiency, like super efficient showerhead, super efficient lighting, super efficient fridge that takes eight watts on average. It's basically a conversion of a chest freezer to a fridge. Um, really pushing the envelope towards... Uh, We'd like to get a living building challenge certified home, which is the high, highest standard of regenerative construction, essentially an autonomous house that pretty much can live independently of the utilities. Of course, the utilities, that's one of the options. You can connect to all the utilities you want, or but you really have the option to go fully off-grid if you want
1: to. I've always thought one of the biggest challenges to make off-grid viable in this country is uh is different and depending on where you live in the, in the country living mm-hmm. off grid in let's say Vermont mm-hmm. it's actually not that difficult living off grid in Texas with our summers far more difficult have you have you worked with this in any way to think about the whole concept of cooling because heating is something that's not that there's so many ways to create heat right but uh-huh. when you're dealing with temperatures you know like this summer we had some days we were like 112 degrees yeah. So definitely thought about
2: it in the first idea is different uh well well, go back to the bricks. So compressed earth block in principle should be able to get you even without air conditioning in places like Texas, like Adobe Construction. So the idea there is to explore if that can be done. So that's that's on a on a map as we right now we're building in Missouri and, and sure. we're put we're putting in I mean, right now, we don't hardly have any AC in, in this place. I mean, the, the, like, for example, when the temperature is outside, like 90s, it could, it's typically about 10 to 15 degrees cooler in a wow. house. So that's one side. It's it's about passive passive solar design that can get you a long way there. And that's actually with a recent collaboration that we're, we actually started working with, with Jim Halleck, who's one of the lead builders in... Of, of brick, compressed earth block in the states we're looking at exactly that how do you do a hot temperature house and how do you do a cold temperature house that's based on the compressed earth block so that's in development we don't have firm answers on that right now but definitely the, the material that you start with itself plays a huge huge issue on that and then if you have I mean if you have to go uh, into the high heat areas like Texas I mean still if you got solar power like, like in, with the cost of PV panels today can get your cooling needs that way. I mean, solar right now is like fifty cents a watt under that, which is I mean, most people don't recognize, but that's ridiculously cheap these days. Like thirty sure dollars for three thousand watts. That's that's amazing. So,
0: I mean, so
1: that's, you, if you use something like earth block, you've already got an advantage. Then you add, yeah. you can do some cooling because you don't need anywhere near as much cooling because we're talking about a smaller structure. I believe seven hundred square feet. And you've got this incredible insulative value of Mother Earth.
2: Right. That's exactly right.
1: Mm-hmm. Very cool. So how are you achieving a, a cost? I mean, I think the median rate now uh, home in America is like 280000 or something like that. So you're looking yeah. at like a tenth or less of the cost, right? Exactly. So how do you do that? Here's the model. So our
2: goal is to so, – so one side is labor and one side is the materials and technology. So let's talk about the labor first. We figured out – this swarming build model where we invite people for a a workshop and people actually pay us for that workshop as immersion training. We we kind of figured that out and we're trying to see if that can scale. We think it can because there's just a lot of interest on that. But the idea would be we get a client, they pay us for the materials and then we, we act as facilitators and organize the large build team working in parallel. So this is because the design is, is completely modular. It's designed so a large team can work on it in parallel, even on the utilities and all of that, so that we would charge a client about 10k or so, and we have to figure out what what actually um, makes sense and is sustainable. So the idea is around 25k in materials and then 10k for a build service fee, assuming that you've knocked all the waste out of there, like assuming we've got full engineering and and technical documentation that you can just pass pass that through the building codes at minimal or zero cost, yep. whatever is the minimum. So we're just just leaning out the whole process to make it super efficient. Okay, now now let's talk about the materials. Okay, we talked about things like PV at 50 cents a watt. If you install it yourself in this build process, okay, that you don't have the huge install costs. Labor is maybe like 25% of the building cost, 25% is land, 25% is profit and 25% is materials about, like, in standard construction. So we're knocking out – so so this doesn't include land sure. in, in its price. But if you well, talk build, about – Well, Peter things, does the big build
1: price of any house, right? Like, when you see – like, uh, a custom builder says, we build this house for 250000 that assumes you have a place for it to go. Right.
2: Yeah. Okay. That's right. Um, okay. But as far as the costs on um, on the technology, the secret sauce there is open source. Because, you know, get, great example, a hydronic wood fired stove or pellet stove. Minimum cost for them. We've we've got one in here. We've got a hydronic stove right now that heats our subfloor hydronics as well as the ponds in the aquaponic greenhouse. That's 5K right there. Okay, well, we just designed something that that can be built for $500 in materials. So just ridiculous price decrease if you open source, provide the open design, the metal in that stove only costs you so much. So, so you get the drastic cost reduction because the design is open source you're not paying for expensive experts to install it or design it for you
1: well and like so I I'm a numbers guy so as soon as I hear you throw something out like thirty people five days I think a, mm-hmm. you know an eight hour work day uh, twelve hundred mm-hmm. man hours twenty yes. bucks an hour twenty four thousand dollars in labor if you were paying for it and and you're the labor you're using are people that have never done it before so right. even if you had to develop this to the point where you had manpower you were paying for, because mm-hmm. I've been part of these uh, like uh, like like I just call them like uh, squad sourcing, where you you bring together yeah. a squad of people and teach them as they go. Right. If you had ten people that knew how to do it, you would actually move faster than thirty people learning from two or three that know how to do it, right? Yeah. So even if you had to put a labor cost in there of let's say twenty dollars a man hour, you're right. still incredibly low on construction price.
2: So, That's right. Because of the way we're designing this stuff, like for example, a wall module is, is a simple four by eight panel it can be built in an hour, you know. So and it's four by eight area. So the idea is design it, take out all the difficulty of build. Because for example, when an architect designs a house, the architect is not the builder, and yeah. therefore there's a disconnect between how easy they're going to make it to build. So because they don't care, right? So here we care about how long it b- takes to build because we're building it. So we design it for the
1: absolute. We design for build in the design process. So it's yeah, more, I understand is, that. We're doing yeah. a really simple um, greenhouse as part of an aquaponic system, and right. this is the first time I've ever designed something that I'm not building. I'm very lucky. I've got two great friends. They're going to come building mm-hmm. for me, and I'm I'm str- I was struggling right before I called you for the interview today. I've got my my sketch pad out and I'm designing, and this is a very simple build. Right. And because mm-hmm. I'm not the one that's doing it, it's it's like I want to make sure I'm not asking them to do something they don't know how to do or whatever. And I think most architects don't give a damn. You know, I can draw anything, right? Mm-hmm. I can right. draw non-reality and say, now make it happen. Where right. if, if I have to actually do the build, not only am I going to think more about my design, but when I redesign it for the second edition, right? So even if the architect has the builder's best interest in mind – he never gets the experience of doing the build he never gets the frustrations of the problems so he doesn't fix those right and a lot of times that ends up with you know builders taking shortcuts if they can hide them from the inspector or whatever and then there's all kinds yeah. of issues there
2: yeah the way we operate here is we're lifestyle investors i mean i'm actually living right now i'm i'm living in the house that's a brick brick building right now we live it. We experience the problems and get frustrated with that and say, okay, this is not acceptable. We're going to fix it for the next time. And we're, we take that responsibility to, to get there. And down to the machines that are used to build it, like the brick press. Hey, that's our own design. We're we having a brick press build workshop coming up next month. And there's this number of redesigns we're making for that from the
1: things we found out that, were, that found, we found we could do better, things like that. That's awesome and I you know that's that's another disconnect so like you're getting a very holistic process here because mm-hmm. let's say I designed a house and let's say that brick you know earth uh, earth material brick presses were something that 10 different companies made right and 10 sure. different ways that they made it and you are the builder and I'm the architect and I said here this is how you lay these bricks out and you say well there's a problem with the brick press do I care as an right. architect, I, 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 that, I can't even afford to care, right? Because right. I don't, I, I don't know how, I just know that this is the material you wanted. To, so I, I designed it that way where right. you have actually built the product that you're using in the design to deliver the deliverable. So you obviously care and that might yeah. make it take longer for you guys to reach a point of satisfaction. But once you get there, it's really been thought about from every angle.
2: Right, it's a question of like it gets to the point of management running a so as an open source project running a considerable team to be able to do it. But here's another point I want to bring up. So Phil Rudder, Badger Set, you know them, right? Yep. So we just planted out six thousand nuts <laughs> nuts on, on our land here, about ten acres, and that's going to be our integrated uh, part of the housing situation in the sense that that's our food, fuel, and fiber crops. So for example pellets for the for the pellet burner stove in a house that's going to come from that and things like that and we just planted that using our open source tractor with tracks with a single shank key line plow followed by a flail mower which we then used and then we planted the plants in there but so we're talking about these whole ecologies of how we design not just the house but also the environment around it so now you're building in your food areas and fuel areas because personally I, I'm a big fan of biofuels but uh Biomass energy, I I personally think that th- that's higher potential than any battery storage. If you actually look at the numbers, and I've done some numbers on that, um, I think it takes like a thousand square meters to fuel like uh, an average person's car travel. Uh, so I went to some numbers like, okay, here's you got you can have solar panels which are like 10% efficient. Well, here's grass. Yeah or biomass, it's only 1% efficient, but it's ecological, does everything for you, and you can burn it in a completely closed-loop system, so that may actually end up making sense. So we're exploring that, too.
1: Well, sure, because you can develop systems where the waste product from the burnt product actually is fertilizer to grow more of the original product. And mm-hmm. it, you, when, when you actually start to think about how those systems work, and when you look at things like you know certain species of trees that you can cut them to the ground, and they, they grow back to what you took, yeah, and a quarter or ten percent of the time it took them to get there the first time because they coppice back from a root system. Right. Then then you start to get an efficiency, and then you realize that like chestnut trees managed with coppicing live a thousand years. Yeah. Right. Where they don't live a thousand years if you just let them grow. So you actually extend the life of some of these biomass crops by oh, okay by harvesting them. Right. So there's there's certain like with commercial hazelnut for instance. Um, yeah. Usually it's a, like a seven-year rotation where like there's a, a seventh of the crop taken to the ground every seven years, mm-hmm. and by doing that there's there are some systems in Europe that have been in continuous cultivation for hundreds of years, right? Where those bushes because is more like a bush than a tree it doesn't live that long if you just you know let it let nature take its course so to speak it, it forest right. succession and stuff so we can actually in permaculture we call it rebounding energy. Right, we're, we're just okay. It's it's it's, it's we're about to meet the point of entropy, and then we'll take this one little step, and we've knocked the ball in the plinko to the back to the top of the the thing, and now it's going to reset. And it has to come all the way back down again.
2: Yeah, that's why it's super rewarding to say, okay, planted all those nuts. Okay, there's definite rabbit losses. Some you know sure. some rows got knocked out. Others are like near 100%. But hopefully that's the last planting for the next 500 or a thousand years on that.
1: And rabbit sustainable meat on top of it all, so. <laughs> there we go, right? So, um, you 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 also like this house is like what what sold me on this honestly because when I first heard what you were doing, Josiah told me about it and I'm like that's cool and all, but I'm like this is another freaking tiny house. This is another one of these things where you're gonna tell you know the family of three is gonna live in 190 square feet and they're gonna knife each other, right? And yeah. you know you're talking about about a 700 square foot structure. So to me that's. An adequate size structure to actually live in. The key is the expandable starter home idea. If you look at the video
2: on the Kickstarter we put out, we told our story. We started with exactly that, 150 square foot micro house. Then we got married here. My wife moved in, and she said, "I need I need some space here." So it was tight, and that's exactly the idea of the incremental housing. You can build what you can afford. And the base the base model we're starting with right now is we're saying okay 750 square feet that's plenty of room and of course you can expand that to your uh, whatever size you need right now we're at about 2,000 square feet after some additions and a greenhouse so it's very comfortable um, but the idea is 750 square foot now I think we can do the same five day build and do something like 1,400 so at least wow. like twice or three times I think we can get there. I mean, when you look at the numbers on the ergonomics of the build process, you can either uh, the easy way to do it is add more people or fit. The techniques certainly lend themselves to adding more people, and definitely more efficiency can be had. It's, these are just initial results; it always gets better. So,
1: Mister, so. Oh, we had you drop there a second. You still there with us, Marshall? Oh. Oh, sorry. So, no,
2: we're we're optimistic about the potential in the sense that we have um, the plan is we've built an 800 square foot structure before. We're doing the complete seed home, filled with ecological features, build this November. We think we can get up to like 1,400 or, or 2,000 square feet still in a in that five day period because you can always add more people because the mo- the methods are modular. And then you can also increase the efficiency where we're always improving as we go along.
1: Very cool. Now, you were saying like 2,000 square feet including like a greenhouse. So in that model, whether you've built it yet or it's, it's a concept, like how much how much of that space is greenhouse space? The current house I'm
2: sitting in right now has got an 800-square-foot greenhouse wow. with aquaponics. we got chickens in there. we got the growing towers. we got 1,200 square feet of space. There's an 800-square-foot addition that we – Added to the first. So the first was 150 square feet. We added another one of those for a bedroom and we added another section in the middle and then a larger addition. So right now we're sitting at 1200 square feet plus 800 square foot
1: greenhouse. greenhouse. Wow. So I mean, the reason I'm asking this, I'm just kind of, I, I always try to extrapolate to what's possible. And I just think so the average new home construction in America today is mm-hmm. 2250, right? Yeah. And even if we didn't do all this wonderful stuff you're doing, even if we just said, hey, you know what? Of that twenty-two hundred and fifty square feet, eight hundred square feet of the average American home could be dedicated to producing food for the family with a greenhouse and aquaponics and things like that. It, it, it kind of doesn't it if you just like let yourself dream that for a second. Doesn't it kind of stagger the imagination to the amount of food security that this country could create with that shift in? And it's not even policy, right? It would just be a shift in desire. Because you say whatever you want about the free market, but if there's a desire for it then it shows up, right? If people wanted that it, I think if people knew it was possible and, and, and demanded it, then then the market yeah. would deliver something like that. And it's 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 almost unfathomable and you know, you could think that like the produce sections of most groceries would get pretty lonely. I mean people yeah. would be going to the grocery to buy the few things they can't produce. And with yeah. a greenhouse hell you can produce coffee, you can produce tea, you can produce No, coffee. that's Let's, let's look at some numbers. We've got 3,000
2: gallon pond in there at, at capacity using casual growing, no, no like major oxygen injection or anything, three pounds of fish per day. We've got 48 towers, 22 slots each, so you can grow a thousand lettuces on a month time, lettuces or greens on a month time scale, and that's just half the greenhouse. So what we're trying to do is do a, a model where we show that even this little tiny greenhouse could do $2,000 in profit per month using a small CSA operation. We've got your vegetables, your fish, your mushrooms maybe. Uh, we're trying to get into sprouts because that's definitely like high value for a small area. But we're actually trying to recruit a person for that. So anyone listening out there who wants to do that, we really need a person to take that full time and demonstrate this economic model. Down the road, we want to show that um, we could see something like, say, you're in a city. We could provide this greenhouse, and we could provide a service where actually manage your greenhouse, and we could possibly even, uh, yeah, you you can harvest it yourself, but we can manage it. So it can be service that if someone doesn't have the time in a city or yeah. more urban area, that could be a service that they get provided with. And then you walk out to your greenhouse, you pick your, you know, you take your your tomatoes and lettuce, fish or whatever you want uh i think that can definitely become a an economic model that's what we're working for about all these social production models which just radically re-relocalize how things happen but yeah as far as the area required no i mean any single house could go a very long way to to its security the limit there is okay what are you feeding your fish or like how how are you what are the inputs to that greenhouse so you would have some like the 800 square foot if you've got the fish in there our last challenge there is how do you feed the fish if you're going to fertilize it all off its own nutrition and all that. Uh, so things like growing worms or, or possibly even mushrooms, we haven't figured that part yet, but we'd like to see this thing as a closed-loop system so you don't have to buy that fish food.
1: Black soldier fly, I mean. Uh, yeah. So like here, like some of the stuff we're doing here with the aquatic systems we have, and we're going to try to integrate them into this new aquaponics system is, for instance, we are putting in our aquaponics system, several of the beds will be uh, wicking beds. And mm-hmm. one of them, will, we run quail in an aviary, and the, the aquaponics mm-hmm. heart will be in the greenhouse we're building. But the grow beds are actually not in the greenhouse. They're in the quail aviary. So there's a, an interchange there. Well, one so of those wicking beds will grow – you were talking about uh, sprouts and, and, and microgreens – will grow uh, sunflower microgreens for the quail, which it's a high-end product, but it's actually really cheap to produce. And if you're not worried about presentation to a restaurant chef – and you're just mm-hmm. whack and on the ground. though there's a there's a feed product for the quail uh, right there. And another thing we grow in all of our aquatic systems here is we grow duckweed, which is like 30 yeah. percent protein. Well, tilapia eat that. Well, so do quail.
0: Mm.
1: And then I've just discovered my ducks love water lettuce, and so do the quail.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So then water lettuce can be another product. So like you, you're still like like. I know what you're saying, like that last bit, like you can only do so much with uh, with tilapia on duckweed and you can only grow so much duckweed. But if you can even just – like let's say you have to buy – because we, we do – we buy pelletized seeds for the fish. But if you can reduce that to a 10 percent requirement or a 20 percent requirement of normal, right, then everything starts to get so much easier. And not even though you're still relying on another system, you're reducing the pressure – you see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? You're reducing the pressure yeah. on the uh, what what the what the consumer level market or the uh, the, the second tier market has to produce uh, to a, to a point where and, and then the the cost of it's irrelevant because it's it, it's so insignificant compared to the yield. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It, somehow in, in our system we also looked at so we're in tempered we're much colder than you We get down to negative 20 in the winter but in the summer we can definitely. Look at outside ponds, kind of like Chinampa style, but Mm -hmm. but water from the tanks that expands to a much larger pond outside where we can grow that in the summer and then harvest that for winter, things like that. But somewhere you have to be capturing the the solar energy to grow that food somehow. Yeah.
1: That water lettuce, I just learned about this from a buddy of mine named David, who's helping me do all this, and it is incredible. The the roots that hang down on this stuff, and if you have a lot of solid waste – when you pull it out to feed it to an animal, it's just, the roots are just, they just take solid waste with them. It's just like hanging on to the root system. And then you're cycling it through. And then, like I some like ducks kill each other over it. Um, right. So that's like something, you know, you can look at there. But yeah, I know what you're saying. Like even here, like you are colder, but if something dies when it freezes, you don't have to freeze for one day and it's dead, right? So yeah. we get plenty of days where, you know, we had ice. Last year we had like a weird thing. It was like, It was like we moved to Houston for uh, a year. We had no real bad weather. But the last two years, we had, you know, four or five inches of ice on the ground over a week long. So we get the same type of thing. And I I always struggle with how do we, how do we expand what we can do outdoors? We have a small pond that's, you know, an outdoor pond and catfish survive the winter and they're no problem at all. But all all of these, um, vegetative components, like that all goes away Mm -hmm. in the winter. So you have to figure out some way to create a biological battery you know, and yeah. it, it, it's, it's, black soldier flies, it's a great protein source, but since as as winter right. comes, they're like, you know, we'll see you next year. Right. Yep. And
2: then mushrooms can convert. Like I heard, so we did oysters and then, so you take straw and then they convert it to mushroom biomass, which is like 27 or so percent protein. So yeah. even that straw has all of that in there. So I was thinking about that. That might be one way to go. You have abundant straw can convert that to concentrated in mushrooms possibly that that be the feed so that sounds cool. I don't know how you get a fish to eat it, but if you can, then you're there right yeah I mean I don't know I think they they would eat the mushrooms I mean we we had we did them we dried them and then we cooked them up again uh, if you know how to cook them, they are extremely tasty yeah
1: yeah yeah we're mm-hmm. doing uh we're, we're not doing oysters here we're doing strephoria uh wine caps. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm having a lot of fun with that this year because I do do my kitty pools that were out for the ducks. I turn them into mushroom beds, and every time the mycelium gets to the point where I think it's gonna like fruit, I just divide it. So we have like eight kitty pools of, uh, inoculated, uh, wood chips now that should mm-hmm. all fruit this fall. Uh, so we'll have more mushrooms than we know what to do with, it. and it's simple. It's not, it's not difficult, right? And it's like a mm-hmm. lot of this stuff, we just need to figure out how to piece it all together, and that just seems like a big part of what you guys are doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, are your designs like all the stuff we're talking about? Can anybody gain access to this? Yeah, absolutely. It's all online, public. For the
2: buildings themselves, it's not only the the plans, but also design software. There's uh, Sweet Home 3D. We've got library files that you can download for all the components that you can actually start designing yourself. So right now, we're preparing design guides, which are also fully engineered. We're looking at all the build details and providing the the, the underlying engineering so that somebody can say, oh, okay, this is how I work with them. And you can design yourself your own house without an architect, so that's that's part of the assets we're providing
1: and I mean your goal here really is to provide uh, something that's sustainable and regenerative. like you were mentioning a certification i I missed it real quick when you said it, but like you're yeah. trying to basically create a house that literally does provide for itself essentially right that's that's uh, the
2: work of the living building challenge. It's called it the lead on steroids, but that's the living building challenge is essentially an autonomous house definition it's got all i mean just crazy stuff like including the off-grid water the black water processing things
1: like that well and what i kind of like about what you're doing is you know it's it, it's compressed brick and all but when you look at it like when i look at some of your videos and pictures it looks like a house right it doesn't yeah. look like it doesn't look like an earthship or something where right. you can't you can't work with the the department of making you sad i call that code enforcement <laughs> like, so, like, how have you, how have you thought about that? Because, like, those guys, a lot of times if it's square, it has windows, it's got a roof. Yeah, right. Yeah, I did, you know, even if you they say, said, well, you, you have to be on grid, okay, fine, uh, you know, most people can hook their house up on grid for almost no money, and then I just won't use it. He so, said, whatever I got to do to get by this stuff, but it looks like something that you can, you can work with a bureaucrat and get through it with them.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd love to live in a cave, but my wife doesn't. So, so that's uh, we're making it a very deliberate uh, statement. We're saying this is gonna spread when it looks absolutely stunning and beautiful. So that's part of the design. the The build in this November is intended to be that. It's we're designing that to be beautiful so that people can take a look at it and say, "Wow." and from the Kickstarter we're actually we're producing a, a printed book that will be a coffee table book. So we're really saying, hey, this is gonna be so good that people want to look at it as a coffee table book as well. So inspire people and say this is for real and accessible. And then, that, then it goes to other areas like I what I see is that in a future economy when people get more capable to do a lot more things themselves, you got the food production there, then think about your garage. It's got your, your CNC torch table, a CNC machine, an industrial robot, and you can produce just about anything in your own garage from your cars to your tractors and engines. I think that's going to be a reality pretty soon. I think that's forthcoming. Uh, people just don't know about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, all the stuff exists. It's just a, a cost issue. And, and we've learned, you know, like I said, there's a lot of things we can say negative about consumer driven economies and, and, and uh, some of the things going on in the modern world. But when is in demand efficiencies of scale eventually take the cost of these things and drive them down so i'm sure you've seen the the, the garden bot thing or they call it farmer sure. I, I call it garden bot cuz it's i don't see it the scale as a farm yet right, right. Um, but it's basically a, a cnc machine right and, and with with a 3d printed attachments right and so like are you guys thinking you know like as you mentioned the CNC thing in the in the in the garage or whatever, but you know 3D printing being part of like the the ecosystem of these houses? Absolutely. It already is. So so if you if you see the
2: the documentation on the Open Building Institute go to how it works. part of it is an open source materials production facility where we can produce lumber, compressed earth block, concrete by burning lime, Get a load of that, charcoal for things like filters. Open source paint and insulation and glazing. Okay, how do you do glazing? How about you take some old scrap CDs, grind them, turn them into filament, and then 3D print multi-wall um, polycarbonate glazing. That's why we're currently we're building the the scalable 3D printer to do exactly that. There's
1: got to be about a gazillion CDs and DVDs that just are not needed anymore. Yeah, okay, so we got to do something with them. Yeah. So think about yeah.
2: Reset. And so now you're talking about recycling scrap and turning that into virgin products and high quality, high performance products because we've got the industrial materials and then the distributed production capacity like the 3D printers.
1: So I mean, with that type of mentality, it's kind of like the self-replic. The house becomes a self-replicating machine, right? So yeah. If you can get, because I mean, a lot of people, including me, have tried to start up like these community sites. But if you can get one built and you can use one to build two and you can use two to build four, you can kind of automate a community development plan.
2: Absolutely. I mean that's that's the idea here as far as the digital fabrication is concerned, with a CNC torch table, you essentially put some steel on the table, you make all the parts for the the brick press, etc. So that's really pushing the limits. You you mentioned about um, the industrial efficiency, but the other argument would be against that, that there's the dysfunctionality of scale. And sure. we're, we're showing that, um, for example, the brick press, we build that in a single day. And that's, that's coming up September 23rd for anyone who wants to see that. But using digitally cut files, we just do a bunch of welding and a large team in parallel gets on a bunch of welders and grinders and does it. But the thing is, nobody in the world does that, that fast. Cause typically production lines are set up to be linear. Um, but if you design it for this rapid parallel build by modularity, you change the game completely. So we can make a claim that we are in
1: efficiencies are
2: even better than uh, gotcha. the large scale industri- industrial.
1: Well, if you think about rolling out a community, right? So once we have a brick press, we probably don't need. Maybe we need to if we're going to really go fast. But we don't need. We don't need one for every house. So right. once it's done building one house. I, I don't right. really need it again unless I decide I want to ex- extend my house so we can go build another house. Exactly. Since I can build it quickly with an automated machine, all I've got in it is the metal. I, I, I'm, not so, like, I'm not financially and emotionally attached to it. If the guy building a house next to me wants to use it, go ahead. Because the way I really feel about it is if I really need another one, I can make another one.
2: Yeah, and let's look at the numbers. 5,000 bricks per eight-hour day, enough for a small house. So, uh, myself, I, uh, with one single person, one time I pressed 1200 bricks in an eight hour period. That was just an experiment to see how much I can use the tractor to load it and stack this on pallets. I did 1200 in a day. That was very hard. Yeah. But a team of a few people, like four people, you readily do replicably the 5,000 bricks. One person on the tractor loading the machine, couple of people stacking the bricks on pallets. That's, that's what it takes and right now we're trying to do the same so that's just for uh, raw compressed earth our next step right now is to do the same for stabilized block so a nice soil conditioner soil mixer that mixes your lime with that so you can press stabilized block that's our next step we haven't done that you need like if you want to get really high quality block that's also water resistant and say 1200 1500 psi uh you want to stabilize that and that's that's our next step. So we're looking at actually selling that as a product, so people can start building. Uh, in the house itself, right now we're we're doing a CEB floor. We're going to do a couple of walls, and the rest will be the modular carpentry, the, the modular panels. But uh, production, it's it's you. All it takes you is a couple of days, a few days of use, and you can pass it on to your neighbors.
1: Because I guess that's something people should think about. Like I think when people hear you talk about compressed brick from dirt, right, and earth. They they think of like I don't know like a sod home from like the pioneer days or something. These these homes yeah. are basically have a, like a wooden shell. It's a it's a component of the house. It's not the ha- like it's not faced in dirt. You know I'm a dirt house.
2: Uh, some different ways to do it. We did uh, some of the structures here like our workshop. It's it's got the brick face. Nothing on it. It's just okay. got overhangs to protect it from water. And uh, the recent houses we typically put. Uh, wood just wood siding on it to protect it from the elements. If you if you get rid of the um the wood siding, you can use stabilized block just as well. So it depends on your taste.
1: Okay. So are you? look I'm looking at you. Know, I haven't had a chance to look at the video that's on the the main page of the site yet, but I'm seeing the little house be going up next to the other little house and a bunch of pallets. Are you basically building siding out of those pallets?
2: No, no, that was that was just to stand on. For, okay, uh,
1: okay. Going up to the higher <laughs> that courses. looks like pretty pretty nice siding.
2: Yeah. No, that's just uh commercial siding, but we want to you know, get out the sawmill here and start using that. We haven't haven't really used the sawmill for production yet, but we want to do that within the next year. It's part of the open source materials production. So thinking about all the materials instead of going to your uh, Home Depot or whatever, you can make it in local communities. Mhm.
1: Very cool. So I got a bunch of links here uh, that you sent me through Skype while we're talking. I'll make sure those are all in the show notes. But do you want to tell people how they can learn more about you, support your work, and, and get involved?
2: Definitely. Openbuildinginstitute.org. You can look at our main site. There's a Facebook page for Open Building Institute and Open Source Ecology. That that uh, That's where we post most recent announcements. As far as you want to get your hands dirty um that's workshops we offer them that's how we support ourselves we basically host workshops and build products during those workshops as our revenue model but the first one coming up is the compressed earth block a single day bill september 23rd where this so you basically get to experience the extreme manufacturing techniques that we use second day we'll be doing some sample brick pressing and, and testing the machine and then they will will build a brick, pr- a, a, it's called a power cube, a m- modular hydraulic power unit that can be used to power this brick, pr- other means like the tractor. That's the first workshop. And then after that, we've got the big builds coming up, the the seed eco-home, 750 square feet, plus the aquaponics greenhouse. Those are immersion five-day workshops, full builds. We're not talking about like... Um, getting in like factory-made panels. We're saying we're building all that on site. We're starting with a foundation and going up to all the utilities because, for example, like shower, sink, toilet, we also make them as modules that can be basically slapped into the house, basically uh, structures on a pedestal with a couple of water connections on that, so really pushing the radical modularity there. And then after that, we're actually doing um, uh, European workshops on a 3D printer. We, we're doing the 3D printer construction set, that's relevant, as we mentioned, doing things like printing our multi wall polycarbonate glazing or rubber tracks for the tractor. That's one of our other goals on that. But, yeah, definitely workshops if you want to get involved hands-on. Also, we're holding design sprints. Uh, I can send a link to that. But, for example, this weekend, we're going to be working on drawing up the CAD files using open source software, using a large parallel team. Uh, so design sprints are where remote collaboration can happen. And also, um, kind of like Jack's program a little bit i i've got a true fans program where people donate ten bucks a month to to support this work as well but primarily we're uh, to make the scale what we're doing is developing the the revenue models on a brace based on a workshop model as a as a real viable alternative to factory production so that's how we'd like to roll it out into the world and hopefully you can get involved in it also the big part just another big item is subject matter experts i mean the way this works is that we can download um, all the best knowledge in the world as an open source nonprofit project by tapping the device of many, many people. So if you look at if you look, go to openbuildinginstitute.org, we've got some heavy hitters over there advising us on all elements from from the engineering, construction to enterprise development. But if you're an if you're a subject matter expert, an engineer, machine designer, uh give us a call. Uh email us. Uh that's how we develop all this stuff, um, all the open source components, all of that. We're we're getting into that, starting with off shelf materials. Then we're starting to build our own components, like down to the hydraulic cylinders, solenoid valves, and engines. We're going to be doing that soon with our <laughs> open source induction furnace. So you see, there's a lot of technical development behind this. So if you're an engineer or a subject matter expert with real technical expertise in a lot of these fields, from technical to also also, the other stuff like the communications marketing and all that we're, we're all a volunteer project trying to kind of operate like the Linux uh, for open source hardware. like Linux is the world's largest, most successful open source software project with like five billion you know like a billion dollars worth of contributions every year from programmers. So we're trying to do that kind of model for hardware and that, that means getting a lot of qualified people to help out and advise us on all the all the topics. So if you're SM, SME subject matter expert, um Email us too, so different ways, either remote collaborations here or hands on participation in workshops um that's what we're about
1: well, cool, man. I appreciate you being with us today and and I thank you for taking the time to be here and I thank you for the important work you're doing um it's kind of amazing to me that somebody that you know had the educational background you did could have just stayed in a career and decided no i'm gonna 'm gonna exit that system and do something that's really for the betterment of mankind, so I appreciate you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jack. Well, that was definitely a deep, fun, informative interview. I really enjoyed having Marson on the show today. Uh, but uh, we've got things wrapped up, so let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we're doing, you really uh, could support us by becoming a member of the Support Brigade. Just go to the com and click on Members to join the MSB. But don't do it. Don't do it, because next week I'm going to put it on sale. See? I'm just going to say, and even if you're a first responder, etc., don't do it this week. I'm going to put it on sale unless you want to be a member for the uh, workshop opening up for sale for MSB members only on Friday. Otherwise, wait, 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 wait. I have something very cool coming with this sale for everybody that wants to join and for everybody that already is a member to get a really great deal on something that's pretty awesome you've probably never seen before. And even though the uh, provider is a, an existing MSV vendor, um, he will be doing a special discount for the duration of the sale that is pretty friggin' cool. All right? So with that, uh, we'll just leave MSV there today and remind you the way you can always support us with no real cost to you whatsoever is to do your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Go to T S P A Z dot com. Whenever you're going to shop on Amazon, click the link, go to Amazon, buy your stuff, done. That's all you got to do. It doesn't cost you a penny more. It doesn't even really take any more time. And you can support this show and the work that we do. Or if you want to, you can check out our Amazon item of the day. And I have a pretty cool item of the day today, a little different than the type of thing we usually have for items of the day. It's a book, and it's a book you've heard me mention at passing on the show many, many times, uh when talking about philosophy and spirituality and the concept of when people truly make a difference, they often find themselves either ostracized, pushed to the side, or under attack. That book is called Jonathan Livingston Siegel. It's by Richard Bach. It was released in 1970. It became an immediate bestseller, selling over a million copies between 1970 and 1972. It's a book that you can look at as a spiritual book, something that talks about finding higher levels of spirituality here and what happens after we die. Or you can look at it solely from the standpoint of what it takes to actually make a difference in the world, to be a great doer or a great teacher, and the sacrifices that are necessary. In any event, a lot of times when you hear me talk about things on the show and you hear me talk about specifically how to deal with the human condition, a lot of my viewpoint on that has its genesis in this book, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, and the book that came after it called Illusions they're both by Richard Bach and for what it's worth Jonathan Livingston Seagull is about a real seagull named Jonathan Livingston Seagull and he has a desire to be more than just a regular seagull to fly higher to dive deeper to not live off the scraps that come from the the fishing boats but to live off the deeper fish that are beyond the reach of a seagull. And in his quest, he is banished, and eventually he takes on students. And from there, if you want to know the full story, you'll have to read the book. The good news, it's light reading. You can read it in about an hour and a half without speed reading it at all. It would be a wonderful book for those of you that have plans to get away for a while and just relax and sort of try to, well, think about the world and find yourself. The story of this book is that all the way back in 1996, actually 95, because I hadn't met Dorothy yet, a gentleman named Michael that works for, uh, did, I don't know where he, what he does today, worked for Lockheed Martin at the time. Actually, it was a at the time before like three different buyouts happened in two years. But I uh, worked for, we just call it Lockheed. And uh, when I was in telecommunications, we were talking and he said, you're a person with questions about life. Somebody gave me this book. I'm going to pass it on to you. I suggest that you read it. And it wasn't JLS. It wasn't Jonathan Livingston Siegel. It was Illusions. It was the, the book that came out second in Bach's writing career. And I read it and in it he references, cause he talks about himself in the book at parts, even though it's fiction, uh, you know, after he, he didn't really ever want to write another book again. It was too hard. It was too much work. He never expected it to be so big. And I'm like, what is this Jonathan Livingston Siegel book? So I got a copy of that. And I would tell you that if you've never read the work of Richard Bach, read the one about the seagull first, then read illusions. And you can bet that illusions will at some point be featured as a TSP item of the day. If you want to go ahead and get them both now, just make sure you go through the TSPAS link if you want to support the show. It's an inexpensive book. I will point out the Kindle edition, unlike most of the time, is actually more expensive, probably because it's such an old book uh, that had to be reformatted for Kindle purposes. Anyway, with that, uh, I also do want to remind you that you can help support the entire community by considering doing business with members of our community by going to tspbiz.com for the business directory and check out the different companies that are of entrepreneurs right in this community. Uh, today's supporting member of the directory is Deliberate Defense. They provide firearms training and NRA instructor certification. They are located in New Mexico. Check them out at the TSP business directory. As for our closing song today, I'm going to play the song that I was supposed to play for you yesterday. Yeah. Um, I played a song for you yesterday called Good Old Boys Like Me by Don Williams. It was a fantastic song. But there was this stanza that was supposed to be in the song, and here's what happened. Uh, you know, every day, when I started adding a song of the day, it's one more thing I have to do. So when I get requests or suggestions, a lot of times I'm like, great, if, song, if I like the sound of the song, it goes on. So there was a, the, the line that was supposed to be in the song about there was no place I couldn't go with a 22 rifle and a fishing pole. And... uh I, I really didn't listen to the song, other than I clicked the link that the guy sent me and got to "Good Old Boys Like Me" and just heard, you know, the the soft winds through the the live oak trees and all. It just sounded like such an awesome song. And you know, what are we supposed to do, "Good Old Boys Like Like Me"? And it it all made sense and it it sounded right. So, yesterday I actually listened to the song in in my car when I went out to get some materials, and uh, the the stanza just never showed up. Just wasn't there. And I get an email today from the uh, the guy that that sent me the original one and said well that 's the problem. I gave you the right information, but it sent you the wrong link to another don williams song the uh, The actual song is called Lord have Mercy on a Country boy and uh, you know whenever I hear that title, I always think of uh, john Denver you know thank god i 'm a country boy it 's a totally different song and I realized when i when I heard this song, I had heard this song before, and I just had forgotten the the lyrics in it and how how true to my childhood and probably the childhood of many of you guys, uh, out there that it was, uh, roaming the fields and now live in the city and none of this really works for me. Uh, those two songs have very similar themes and I'm grateful that, uh, that I think it was Matt uh, sent this, made the mistake of sending me the wrong link because that a song I played yesterday by Don Williams I'd never heard before and it's a, just a beautiful song. But today I'll, p- I'll play you the proper one. Lord have mercy on a country boy, because sometimes it's hard to fit in. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.